All right, so welcome back to Merland, Chicago, a deep dish of death. My name is Jonathan Sanchez Leos, and I'm Meredith Halsey. And we're here to talk about the killer clown, Pogo the Clown, Patches the Clown. There's probably no other serial killer in Chicago that is as notorious as John Wayne Gacy. And just as a caveat here, we're not expecting in this episode to say anything that hasn't been said before about him or his murders. We don't have any bombshell information that's never been explored or discovered before, but we're here to re-examine who Gacy was using Chicago as a backdrop. Again, this podcast is basically, I'm going to throw in the social work term here, hibsying these murderers. Hibsy, if you're a social worker, you know exactly what this is, but this is the human being in the social environment. So we're looking at Gacy as a human being in the social environment of Chicago. When you look at the evidence for Gacy, you see that Gacy was very obviously molded by Chicagoan hands. He is not a monster that just gets dropped out, you know, from the sky. He is someone that is created by Chicago. And because arguably there is no other murderer as fundamentally Chicago as Gacy was, Gacy epitomizes a persona, a time, a place, a version of Chicago that has, most might argue, mostly disappeared, but remnants obviously remain. And remember, there's a connection here to our previous topic, Brian Dugan. According to Dugan, when he was 15, he was abducted and sexually abused by a man who he believes was John Wayne Gacy. And this was in the early 1970s when Gacy was active and Dugan did fit Gacy's victim profile. But the story remains unverified. Yeah, and it makes sense why Dugan would want to, quote unquote, identify himself with someone as notorious as John Wayne Gacy. Um... Gacy has had such a huge presence in Chicago, and Dugan, manipulator that he is, would want to... He knows what information sells. He knows what sizzles, right? And he knows that Gacy's presence is indelible. As a Chicagoan, I remember my first brush with Gacy. Not that Gacy ever tried to (laughs) abduct me or anything like that. I'm not trying to make a Dugan claim here. Uh, but in 1994, when Gacy was uh, executed, my uncle was a cop. Uh, one thing that my uncle used to do was get free tacos, right? And it was very common that he would come home at 1 o'clock, 2 o'clock in the morning with all of these tacos that he got free. <laughs> this one night in 1994, my uncle comes and he has his tacos, so he's super excited, but then he's also even more excited. So he looks at me, he's like, guess what? And I was like, I don't know, it's two o'clock in the morning, I just got woken up to eat, you know, free tacos. Um, And he's like, I just saw Gacy. Oh my god. Yeah, and this story is, because Gacy's execution was such a huge media event they had called in cops from all over the city to basically deal with the media circus slash frenzy that was happening right and he worked with the other cops i guess to get like a real close look at him and supposedly was able to obtain some type of piece of paper with john wayne gacy's signature on there I've since tried to verify that fact. My uncle is not talking to the rest of the family right now, so I can't really find out exactly. (laughs) And we're Mexican. It happens. Wait another couple years. Maybe it'll change, you know? Uh, But can't verify that right now. But I do remember him saying that he was able to obtain something, like some kind of transfer or something like that that has his signature on there. But needless to say, you know, I think being a kid, woken up at 2 o'clock in the morning for free tacos... And the topic of conversation is John Wayne Gacy and his execution. It made those tacos the most memorable tacos that I've ever had in my entire life. Meredith, what was was your first Gacy memory? You know, not as tasty or as late night as yours. (laughs) Honestly, my first memory of hearing about Gacy would have been around the Dahmer uh, when he was captured and in yeah. making the news cycle. Because it was around, I was around that age where I was unsupervised, watching a lot of television. And that was the comparison in the news. Mm-hmm. Like, 
Dahmer did, all of this stuff. Hey, remember Gacy? Yeah. So it was not as personal a connection, but it was still was high in in my young mind in like 1991, I think that was. Well, they're, they're basically as characters back to back because, yes. you know, as soon as Gacy is executed, Dahmer kind of arises and really, even though he's not technically from Chicago, because some of his murders happened there and because he, you know, was from Milwaukee, it, there was so much spillover. You know? It was all the comparisons. Yeah, yeah. Right? It, they went that, to the same places, you know? Yeah. They went to the same places. They preyed upon a similar victim profile. Yeah. And weirdly, I remember this part. They were comparing, or they brought up body counts. Yes. Which, yeah. that's a strange thing to compare people on, especially when you're talking about killing. Because when we're comparing achievements, it's usually in a very positive way. Like, oh, you know, so-and-so won this competition and they're the greatest of all time at whatever sport. Yeah. Comparing body counts is not that. But the way that it's discussed in the news can sometimes come across as as being of a similar vein. Yeah, and extremely dehumanizing, right? Going back again to why we're doing this podcast is, you know, we're, we're really trying to humanize everyone involved in the situation and make them not just numbers because when we look when we combine the american obsession with a superlative right we can really get to some insane places like you said where we're just focused on who killed the most people right Right. Right. um which it should never really be about well, another Gacy-related aspect that marked my childhood, and I'm, 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 I want to know if this got to your neighborhood. The legend of Homie the Clown. Homie the Clown was a local legend that I have corroborated existed amongst many Chicagoland areas. In Chicago, there were these horror stories of a killer clown who rode around Chicago neighborhoods in an unmarked white van. This homie the clown supposedly would lure kids for the purposes of either raping, killing, dismembering, or selling kidnapped kids. The reason depending a lot on who was telling the story and for what moralistic purpose. But I remember as a kid being super scared. And this is post-Gacy's execution. So I remember people saying, yeah, I saw homie the clown last night. And that being a very common thing to hear on the playground. Did this get to you at all? No. No, it did not at all. And I think there's something there with uh, we have a slight age difference. But I think that slight age difference meant a lot back in Mm. 94. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, probably. (laughs) Probably. doesn't mean that much right now. Um, My only exposure to Homie the Clown was through In Living Color, Mm, Homie mm -hmm. D. Clown, played by Damon Wayans. (laughs) And in class, you know, I didn't get to see that show a whole lot. I was still young enough where my parents had some some control over what I watched. Mm -hmm. However, my classmates did see it. And so I was was familiar with some catchphrases. I was familiar with a, a rough clown that was funny. But my personal, like, scary clowns, the boogeymen that I saw were from the movie Killer Clowns from Outer Space. Yeah. So, unfortunately, we don't have that overlap. But <laughs> I do think that the scary clowns does get at something bigger. Yeah. Gacy's characterization as Pogo the Clown tapped into an existing zeitgeist about murderous or suicidal clowns. Mm-hmm. And I looked into this because I was like, wait a minute, there's something deeper here. It, it really is. There's something yeah. super fascinating. I had an ex that was afraid of clowns. Mm-hmm. And I also similarly went down a weird research rabbit hole with this. It is, there are so many layers. There are. So like kind of touching at just a couple of the highlights, right? So going back as far as 1892, we get the opera Pagliacci. Mm -hmm. And Pagliacci just means clowns in Italian. There is a murder at the end of that opera. Spoiler alert. Sorry. The clown (laughs) does it. All right. And now we, we get a little bit further into recent history. There's films such as He Who Gets Slapped. It's a 1924 movie. Mm-hmm. It's a clown. He's yeah. the killer. Sorry, spoiler. Sorry, 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 sorry. Okay. <laughs> Just in case anyone out there was going to watch. <laughs> right. He you know, was this almost 100 years old. Right, right. But storytellers occasionally take the clown image. They take it from something that was supposed to represent childhood, innocence, and joy, mm-hmm. and they subvert it into a symbol of terror. 
Pogo the Clown gave the press something to really latch onto, and the killer clown idea got dialed up to 11 in pop culture. After Gacy was arrested and his crimes exposed in 1978, we saw an explosion of evil clowns in pop culture. Mm-hmm. From books like Stephen King's It to Sideshow Bob on The Simpsons and Homie D. Clown on In Living Color, all the way to movies like Funny Man, House of a Thousand Corpses, Funny or Die, and of course, I already mentioned, Killer Clowns from Outer Space. These scary clowns were so dominant that I actually find it difficult to recall any clowns that are not evil or wrong in some way. Yeah, I think that this is, to me, this is fascinating that, you know, as, what, what, what generation are we? We're like millennials. We're like old millennials, right? Elder or something. millennials. Elder millennials. That's what we're called, yeah. As elder millennials, I do remember getting clowns a lot as a toddler and then this marked change right and it's so weird to see how today there is only the killer clown narrative mm-hmm. but when you look at that kind of period before especially between like the 40s 50s and 60s the clown was seen as this benevolent figure right and i think what gets lost is that contrast that juxtaposition that you're talking about and you're you're exactly right. So we're we're elder millennials. Gen X was right above us. Those of us who are old enough to remember when 20, 27, 29 bodies were discovered in Gacy's home. Yeah. We can't separate Gacy's crimes from this killer clown trope in the media. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He is the killer clown. Yeah. So this is going to be a two-parter because what we're trying to do is we're focusing on discussing Gacy as a uniquely Chicago monster and not just as a local legend, a local myth that is only focused on the killer clown narrative, right? Because doing so robs us of a richer understanding of how this happened. And like we said before, if we don't understand history, we are doomed to repeat it. And we're going to be going in depth into contextualizing the murders and how to understand them through a uniquely Chicago lens. So to do that, we're going to talk about a couple different Gacy's today, right? And all these Gacy's are here for us to understand how Chicago created Gacy, how Gacy using a Hibsy approach human being in the social environment, how to be able to understand better how this actually happened. It didn't just happen magically. It didn't just, he didn't just go around riding in a car dressed as a clown to do this, right? Um, we need to understand how this occurred to be able to really get to the bottom of who Gacy was and to humanize him. So we're looking at four human Gacy's. We're looking at Polish Gacy, at Catholic Gacy, at political animal Gacy, and finally, cruising and for those of you who don't know what cruising is uh basically gay gacy all right but before we begin let's get some basics out of the way john wayne gacy was born on march 17th 1942 on saint patrick's day in chicago he was named after john wayne the popular actor in western movies and he had two sisters karen and joanne his parents were john and marion gacy john gacy senior was an auto repair machinist while Marion was a housewife. Gacy's paternal grandparents had immigrated from Poland, and the family was Catholic. John Gacy Sr. was also an abusive alcoholic. He physically and verbally abused the entire family, but he was particularly hard on his young son. When John Wayne Gacy was four years old, his father beat him so viciously with a broomstick that he knocked the boy unconscious. Unsurprisingly, John Wayne Gacy started abusing other children at a young age. When he was around seven years old, he was caught sexually abusing a young girl at school. He was sexually molested starting at around age nine by a family friend who was also a contractor. Gacy married a woman named Marilyn in 1964, moved to Iowa, and had two children. While he was in Iowa, he managed a few franchises of Kentucky Fried Chicken, and he sexually abused his young male employees. In 1968, Gacy was convicted of sexual assault of two teen boys in Waterloo, Iowa, given a 10-year sentence, and served only 18 months due to good behavior. Marilyn divorced him on the day he was convicted. In 1970, Gacy gets paroled, moved back to Chicago, marries a woman named Carol, and started a contracting company. He gets involved with the Democratic Party, entertains kids as a clown, 
and puts a lot of effort into being a well-liked guy. Yeah. Then, on December 21st, 1978, the bodies of 29 victims were discovered in the crawl space located under his one-story ranch-style home located in Norwood Park Township on the northwest side of Chicago. Additional victims found nearby would bring the total to 33. All right, with the overview out of the way, let's focus on where Gacy grew up at 4505 North Marmora Avenue. This house still exists. It's still standing. It's also smack dab in the middle of Polish Chicago. The Chicago metro area has the largest population of people with Polish ancestry of any metro area outside of Poland. If we only take city limits into account, though, Chicago is number three, New York is number one, and London is number two. But there's a reason why we talk about the metro area when we're talking about the Polish population of Chicago. Tens of thousands of Polish immigrants flocked to Chicago throughout the 19th century. In the 1930s, Chicago boasted a Polish population of over 400,000 people. The next big wave of immigration came in the 50s after World War II displaced the Poles. And our most recent big wave was in the 80s when Polish political refugees came over during Solidarity. By the 1950s, successful Chicagoans did what other successfully ethnically white Chicagoans did. They moved to the suburbs. But enough state in Chicago to give it a distinctly Polish identity. They give us... Polish sausages, which you've ever been drunk in Chicago at 3 a.m., you've most likely enjoyed the culinary delights of the Polish sausage. They gave us kolachkis, uh, which every Chicagoan knows what that is, but when you leave Chicago, people don't know. Mm-hmm. Bobaks, which gave us great sausages of all types beyond Polish, and teaching us all a lot about Polish culture. There are so many Polish people in Chicago that regardless of what your ethnicity is, me being Mexican, you're still exposed so much to Polish culture. Yes. Well, and the neighborhood I grew up in was Polish when I was a child. Uh, I think now it's a Mexican neighborhood, but it, it still has a lot of the old Polish institutions down there. Yeah. In Chicago, you can register to vote in Polish, attend Polish language Catholic mass, and watch Polish TV. And to take it back to holidays, schools were closed on Casimir Pulaski Day until 2012, Mm -hmm. right? (laughs) And here's a little personal connection. I successfully scammed my husband into giving me gifts on Pulaski Day, right? (laughs) He's from Utah and he didn't know. Um, And then taking it back to the 90s there, in middle and high school, we learned to swear in Polish Mm -hmm. from our classmates who were from Poland and didn't know English yet. Yeah. I do think it's weird how many Chicagoans understand basic Polish phrases, like kurwa mach. Every person from Chicago knows that kurwa mach is a swear word in Polish, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We all know movimi popolsku, right? We all know zimnie piwa, right? Like, there's there's these weird phrases that, you know, when you leave Chicago, you realize Polish culture is not as big of an ingredient outside of Chicago. Like you, Meredith, I also grew up in a Polish neighborhood. And West Elsden is, like you said, it was a Polish neighborhood that eventually became Mexican, even though there there are still a lot of Polish people that live in the neighborhood. Uh, but I also lived in Belmont Cragen for a while, which is also mm. a Polish enclave. It is important to note for anyone who's Polish-American out there that we are very much aware of the distinction between Southside and Northside Poles. Southside Poles are mostly Highlanders. So they're coming from the southern region of Poland, and the northern north side poles are mostly from Warsaw. And Gacy came from a north side Polish family, and I think that's something that gets really lost in the sensationalism of Gacy is just how Polish Gacy was. Gacy spoke Polish. He used to write letters to his family in Polish. I remember the first time that I read Sam Amaranti's book on John Wayne Gacy. He included some of the letters that Gacy had written to his family members in Polish. And it really left, I don't know, it impacted me because I realized, wow, he he's Polish-American right? Mm-hmm. Um, his last name actually is Polish. His paternal grandparents, their original family name is Gatza, 
or GACA Gatsa, and had immigrated to the United States from Poland when it was still part of the German state of Prussia. He also joked incessantly about being Polish. And I, this is another uniquely Chicagoan thing that is problematic, of course, mm-hmm. uh, but that is the uh, existence of Polish jokes. Oh, yeah. Um, can, can we talk about that a little bit, Meredith? We could. We might get canceled for it. <laughs> well, I mean, we're not advocating for it, right? We're not saying Polish jokes are great. But Gacy used to tell Polish jokes. Yes, yes. He even said that his clown name Pogo was short for Polish guy on the go. Yeah, and, and I, I think it's important to know that the reason why he would say Polish jokes is because this is something that shitty older Chicagoan guys do. Mm-hmm. This is part of their toxic male culture mm-hmm. is to tell Polish jokes. And for those of you who don't know, Polish jokes, the, the, the idea or the construction of them is that Polish people are dumb, right? That That's always the punchline. I, having lived in different cities, have realized that Polish jokes really are a Chicago thing. I think that other metropolitan areas that have large Polish populations or historically large Polish populations probably have them too. But at least in California, whenever I have mentioned the idea of a Polish joke, I just get blank stares back. So John Wayne Gacy used to joke about organizing the Polish Constitution Day Parade in 1975. I had to get 4,000 Polacks to march in the same direction, which is quite a feat. And I will say that when I heard him say this joke, it was in a it was in a documentary, a film documentary. And the amount of glee in his face when he said this, yeah. it made me realize Gacy is used to telling this joke at a bar to a bunch of other people and getting a huge laugh afterwards, right? Yes. It was actually, the, the, just going off a little bit, the, the the fact that he organized the Polish Constitution Day Parade, it was actually because that he was able to organize that, that he was able to meet First Lady Rosalind Carter, wife of the U.S. President, Jimmy Carter. And although a convicted sex offender and child rapist at that time, mm-hmm. the United States Secret Service vetted and approved John Wayne Gacy to talk to and be photographed with Lady Carter. If you look at the photo, you will also see he's wearing an S-pin, which indicates a person who has been given special clearance by the Secret Service. How did Gacy get cleared? He had already been convicted of attacking vulnerable people. Yeah. What's going on there? I don't know if you get this feeling, Meredith, when you like see things with Gacy, but there is a kind of Chicago uncle vibe to him. Oh, yeah. Yep, yep, yep. Where and the pushy Chicago uncle, and I think it's funny because the uncle that I was talking about in the beginning that was the cop, he has that same quality mm-hmm. where he is able to push his way into any situation, and you kind of end up if you're not careful, you can allow that person to get away with a lot, right? Yes, yes. Something else that the Polish brought to Chicago, Catholicism. Okay. Polish Jews tended to settle more in New York, but the Catholics, they all came to Chicago. And Chicago is a deeply Catholic city. I still remember, and I wonder if you do too, when Mm -hmm. Chicago neighborhoods were sometimes referred to as parishes, or people would ask you what your parish was. 40% of Chicago is Catholic. I will say that although I don't recall specifically neighborhoods being referred to as parishes, it's not for lack of my mother trying. <laughs> my siblings and I, we were put on the wait list to go to the local Catholic school. Yeah. And that wait list never opened up. So I went to public school for my from K through 12. Mm-hmm. Right. The demand was just so high. Yeah. And even the in my public school class, there was we were um part of a small baby boom, I guess. I was always in the largest class of the school. Everybody was Catholic. I knew mm-hmm. one person in my school who wasn't Catholic, and he was Jehovah's Witness. Mm-hmm. I didn't know any Protestants, nothing, nobody. Yeah, I, so I did go to Catholic school, mm-hmm. uh, K through six, and I remember when they told us, I don't even know if this is fucking true, but I remember when the teacher told us that Catholic meant universal. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, that makes sense because everyone is Catholic. Like, there's, <laughs> there's no such thing as any other religion. Yeah. Uh, I was an altar boy, too. 
And I bring this up because I think that this is really a good way for us to go to Gacy as a political animal because politics and Catholicism in Chicago have so much overlap. Yes. And when you talk about old school Chicagoans who have power, there is a story that ends up becoming just part of the general narrative of a power player in Chicago. And that starts off with them be- being an altar boy. And there is a reason why, because if you are an altar boy, you are aligning yourself with this organization that is not just spiritual, it's political, right? Mm-hmm. And Gacy was supposedly a devout Catholic growing up and even said that he wanted to be a priest when he was 18. But again, this is where Chicago context is so important. Being a priest in Chicago, especially during this time, was less a sign of spirituality and more a sign of power. This makes sense, especially because what does he become at 18 instead of becoming a priest? He becomes the assistant precinct captain for the Democratic Party. Which brings us to our next topic, Gacy as a political animal. 18 was a big year for John Wayne Gacy. Shortly after beginning his political career, drops out of high school and runs away to Las Vegas to begin a new life out west. This sounds like such a dumb 18-year-old thing to do. And he supposedly does this is because he has a fight with his dad about the car. One day, Gacy comes to the car, realizes that his dad did something to it to make it not work, and he flips out, runs away to Las Vegas. Perfectly normal, perfectly natural. <laughs> All right, so now he's 18 and he's in Vegas. What do you need? You need a job. He gets a you job. A job. Mm-hmm. That job is as a mortuary assistant. Yeah. Totally normal. And that is where he reports having his very first erotic experience with a corpse. Yeah. And now we're going based on his self-admittance, so we'll, we'll take it with a grain of salt. Yeah. But according to Gacy, he was alone with the body of a teenage boy during his job, and he cuddled with it. Yeah. And he, he says that this, like... Um, this opened things up for him. Mm-hmm. All right. He reported that this experience shocked him and prompted him to return home to Chicago. Yeah. One of the things that I think makes Gacy so interesting is that he took everything that he saw and he figured out how to use that information to manipulate situations and really capitalize on what he was learning. He wasn't that smart. His IQ was reportedly 118. I think this is maybe like above average, Meredith. I don't know. Let's look it up. Okay. I've never taken one. Have you? I did. I (laughs) took a bunch of them. When you were a kid? When I was a kid, yeah, because they didn't believe my results. And so it it was very racist and it happened. (laughs) I know I wouldn't do well because there's spatial and mathematical reasoning on it. Okay. They're stupid tests. Yeah. The... Average IQ in the United States, according to Healthline.com, is 98. Wow! So, actually, no, he was smart then. If we're going to use IQ as an accurate reflection of intelligence, yes. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Because as someone that has historically done well on IQ tests, I can also say I don't think they really matter at Mm -hmm. all. Um, And they they test for really dumb things. But his IQ is 118. But and I and I guess what we're tra- what I'm trying to say here is that you know he didn't really have a formal education at all, right? Mm-hmm. But regardless of that, he was able to always utilize information in a way that was Machiavellian. And when he gets back to Chicago, he takes some classes at Northwestern Business College, which even though it has the word college in it, isn't actually a college. It's a Northwest Chicago institution. Meredith, have you heard of? The I Northwestern Tell Business. Tell me about it. Okay, so I know of this because Northwestern Business College is was basically like a college. I'm I'm using that term very loosely mm-hmm. and in quotation marks in like a former Kmart. Okay. Oh. And they taught courses that were not necessarily college courses, but like typing. Right. Um, they taught you things like medical record keeping and mm. stuff like that to like get a job as like a medical office manager. So more like vocational training. 
courses. Very much vocational training. Mm-hmm. And I, I and I think this is why it's important that Chicagoans talk about these things because so many things that I read about Gacy in biographies, in reports, etc., always ask this question, like, how was he able to talk his way into Northwestern Business College despite not having a high school diploma? And I think the reason is because everyone thinks he's talking about Northwestern University. Oh. But he's but he's not. And also, Northwestern Business College, you don't have to have anything because it's mostly vocational training. Right. This is just classes you can sign up for and they'll take you if you can pay. Yes. And yeah. and, and, and you come out with a certificate. Which is which not is, bad, but it's also not the Kellogg School of Business. No, it's not the Kellogg School of Business. <laughs> but I mean, I think if anything is so quintessentially Gacy, it's the <laughs> ability to be able to utilize the name Northwestern Business College, right? Yeah. And have people assume that you went to Northwestern to Kellogg, right? Which exactly. he, he obviously didn't. And for any other potential biographers out there of Gacy, please realize that this is the reason why he was able to go there. He didn't scam his way into Northwestern University. Like we mentioned before, after leaving Northwestern Business College, most likely with a certificate in something, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gacy gets married in 1964. He moves to Iowa and had two kids. So those two kids are still out there. Mm-hmm. His father-in-law gave him a gift. Three franchises of Kentucky Fried Chicken, which Gacy was supposed to manage. And he successfully does for a number of years, making 15000 a year. Which I looked up, Meredith, mm-hmm. how much this was in 1964 dollars. That would be the equivalent of $134,000 a year. Do they still make that much? Because I would like to manage a KFC, please. (laughs) I highly doubt they do. Friends of mine who are like regional managers for Mm -hmm. uh, fast food restaurants, I know they don't make that much money. But this is a huge gift. Yes. And it seems like he was being welcomed into the family and saying like, here's how we make our money. You married my daughter. Here's something to help set you up. It sounds like a very generous gift and a great family to marry into. And I'm saying that without knowing anything else. Totally. Mm -hmm. Right. This is where we realize this is Gacy's mind because right now he's in an environment that I think most individuals would be super happy to be in. Right. But he begins his process of becoming a sexual predator. Mm-hmm. Um, he is tricking and bribing young male employees into sexual activity. Meanwhile, he joins and promotes civic organizations, throws barbecues and parties, and cultivates political friendships. This is him becoming that political animal. People responded well enough to him for Gacy to believe that he was well-liked and had strong connections to people in power. But it turned out that everyone thought he was a little off and were largely being polite. And when I tell you, Meredith, how triggering this information is because Mm -hmm. my uncle was someone who tried to always, you know, befriend people he thought were politically important. And it did get him out of a lot of situations. But that man has no friends. And I think that we see this persona, again, looking at Gacy as an archetype. Of a type of Chicagoan who, you know, talks a little too loud, um, who kind of tries to take advantage of situations, who kind of pushes his way into things. You know, that the ultimate result is they end up sitting in an armchair by themselves, drinking old style, watching, you know, old VHS tapes of Chicago Bears games, right? The good old days. Good old days. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I've had my, my share of run-ins with them so yeah all right those stories for another time but back Mm -hmm. to 1968 (laughs) while he's managing these kfc franchises he gets a little bit more bold and he gets more aggressive with his victims so in 1968 he's actually convicted of sexual assault of two teen boys and he had also paid off an 18 year old young man to beat up and mace one of the younger victims so finally there's some accountability some consequences Gacy's wife, Marilyn, divorces him on the day he is convicted, and she absconds with the children. 
but they must still be around. I couldn't find them. Maybe they changed their names. Yeah. So I I watched the episode uh, that Karen, who is mm. John Wayne Gacy's sister, mm-hmm. does on Oprah, mm-hmm. who is another Chicago legend. But Karen talks about this in her Oprah episode. Oprah asks her, "Do you do you have contact with the kids?" Mm-hmm. And she says that she has attempted contact over the years, like, but they want nothing to do with her. Okay. Yeah. Well, good for them. And I hope nobody finds them. (laughs) You know, got to respect their decision there. Yeah. Okay. So back to Gacy. He actually serves only 18 months out of Mm. a 10-year sentence. He has that sentence reduced for good behavior. And as soon as he gets out, he moves back to Chicago, gets married again, this time to a woman named Carol. She's a divorcee with two young daughters. And Gacy starts a contracting company. He spends a lot of effort in maintaining this respectable businessman persona. He gets involved with the Democratic Party. The barbecues and backyard parties continue. The next summer, however, Gacy gets arrested again when another boy accuses him of sexual assault. He's attacking kids so often that he's running into more and more kids who actually speak out against him. Yeah, and he's getting away with it. And he really learns that by sidling himself up to power that he's able to control his own destiny. Meredith, can we talk about the Democratic Party in Chicago and what that means for everyone? Because I think people sometimes don't realize that when we talk about Democrats in Chicago, we are talking about a very different political reality. Yeah, the Democratic Party in Chicago is machine politics, and hopefully everybody is familiar with that term, machine politics, because we certainly are. We live it every day. I will say as a quick aside that until I went to college, I never knew anybody who voted Republican. Uh, It was not a thing, just in the same way that being not Catholic wasn't a thing. Yeah, and I, I think it's important to note that I also only knew Democrats, right? Yeah. I also didn't even realize that there could be Republicans. Like, that's just such an, a foreign concept. But back then, especially, too, when we're talking about Democratic voters in Chicago, we're talking about a specific type of blue-collar voter that didn't vote based off of social issues. They were voting blue because of their affiliation with a union. And that union was connected very much to the machine politics of Chicago. Now, Gacy was working for the Democratic Committee of Chicago for the for his neighborhood Democratic Committee. And I recently came across a story of Alderman Gardner. Do you know about Alderman Gardner, Meredith? No, no, I don't. The reason why I think this is so interesting is because I have tried to explain the situation to friends of mine from other states, and they have no idea what the fuck I'm talking about because (laughs) it sounds so crazy. Basically, in Chicago, the aldermen are little princes. A lot of political scientists have referred to our aldermanic districts as being fiefdoms. Have you ever heard of that, Meredith? Yes. And what do you think about that? What it means in practice is if you want to do something, you need to be on friendly terms with your alderman, right? Yeah. It it helps. So if you want to start a business, you're going to have to get all sorts of business licenses and and all this stuff. And if you want to have it uh, be a physical location in your neighborhood, well, it really helps if you know the alderman who can kind of grace the wheels for you. And if this is something that you are new to the city or you just haven't paid attention to, your path is not going to be as easy. Yeah. And that might include you being able to get your garbage taken out on time, Mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Uh, That might include you being able to chop down a tree in front of your house, right? Mm -hmm. These things that aren't necessarily huge issues, but that can be annoyances, if you are not friends with your alderman, can really become troublesome. And let me get back to Gardner here real quick. So Gardner is currently under investigation for refusing services to his constituents based upon their relationship with him and in a series of private text message exchanges with a former staffer that were leaked he refers to the individuals in his district as bitches as the c-word refers to them in very disparaging terms and basically in these text messages says they didn't support me so i'm not going to support 
them. Now, what's really important for us to see here in the Gardner case is that Gardner didn't do this on his own. He was using his, what are they called again? Ward captain. He was using his ward captain to do his dirty business. (laughs) And Gacy was also a ward captain, meaning... If you take into context who Gacy was in relationship to his neighborhood, he was the henchman. Yeah. He was not, and, and we see this with, with Gacy, that Gacy's never the, you know, HBIC. He's never the head bitch in charge, right? <laughs> but he's always trying to curry favor with those individuals by basically doing whatever they bid. And he realizes that being the lap cat, Mm-hmm. to the evil henchman brings you power mm-hmm. and he's able to capitalize on that positioning because he's in the lap he's able to get away yes they'll look the other way they'll look the other way and this right. is a this is machine politics if you get into the machine and you have your position and you do what you're supposed to do there's a lot of leeway to do what you want to do Meredith, your husband is from Utah. Yes. What does what does does he ever comment on Chicago politics and what what he sees of it? Uh, yeah, we actually talked a lot about it when we were first dating because he mm. couldn't wrap his mind around it. Yeah, he was just like, "How can the city function with this much corruption?" And yeah. at that time, I I really didn't know what he was talking about. I was like, "What do you mean corruption? This is how a city works." <laughs> Because I just didn't know any better at the time. Yeah. What breeds the corruption in Chicago is the insulation factor, Mm -hmm. right? Because what you have is successive levels of political power that do not want to look at the decisions that their underlings are doing because they want to be insulated from them, right? Yep. And that blind eye, right? If, if we look at the law, <laughs> an actus reus, a criminal act, is not just a voluntary act. It's mm-hmm. also your willful blindness, right? Mm-hmm. And the willful blindness of Chicago's political machine means that a lot of corruption can happen, especially when it comes to things that are seemingly little, like... I want to get another garbage can. So I'm going to donate $500 to my alderman, right? Mm-hmm. And because it is seemingly insignificant, they're not going to, it's not going to show up on the front page of Newsweek, right? They're able to get away with it. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, there's a lot going on in the world. There's a lot going on in the city. One donation and a potential kickback that is you get the extra trash can that you need is not going to hit any sort of radar. And it's uniquely Chicago. I think it also, when people talk about democratic politics, especially in the national scene and talk about it being something so connected to social issues, et cetera, you know, I I have a, a, a wincing reaction because I think as Chicagoans, we are familiar with the democratic machine (laughs) and as an organization that ironically tries to keep things status quo which is more of a republican mm-hmm. you know feeling right? yeah. <laughs> but the democratic machine in chicago really tries to make things stay the same i remember i was a teacher in mckinley park which fell under the democratic precinct or the democratic ward uh that also included bridgeport Mm -hmm. and when you look at politics in bridgeport man it is a wild fucking ride and i think that there are specific enclaves in chicago where that kind of gardner-esque you know, shenanigan of, you know, refusing service to your constituents because they didn't do something or they didn't go to your barbecue. Those are very much alive and well in certain neighborhoods in Chicago. Yeah, I'll bet. And it's not a surprise that it's so strong in Bridgeport because that's where Richard J. Daly came up yeah. in the machine. Right? Yeah. And it, it seems to have a stronger hold there still. <sighs> All right. Well, now we're getting to our next Gacy. Our next human face of Gacy, we talked about the first three faces of Gacy, his Polish face, his Catholic face, his political animal face, and now we're talking about gay Gacy. Arguably the most disgusting Gacy. (laughs) 
and I say that as a gay man. I'm not. I'm not trying to say that as ew, like he was sleeping with men. Hey, I do it too. Okay. Um, <laughs> what I'm trying to say is just that this is this is really where we start to get to some of the most pathology, which makes sense because his sexuality was so repressed. So Gacy's father beat him and his siblings with a belt, among other things. And these beatings started right from the get-go. Gacy was just four years old the first time he was knocked unconscious. Now, for the rest of his life, Gacy would be trying to win his father's approval. And like many abused children, he learned to not cry during the abuse. And also, like many children who learn not to cry, the abuse only escalated when he did that. Yeah. His mother also tried to shield the young Gacy from his father, and that didn't go over so well. His father uh, retaliated even more so. The young Gacy did like and he did get along with his sisters, and later in life, he would treat young girls kindly. Mm -hmm. Gacy's father ultimately died of cirrhosis because of his alcoholism. So one thing that I always think about is the fact that John Wayne Gacy's father named him after John Wayne, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And for those of you who don't know who John Wayne is, wow, you must have been born after 2000. <laughs> John Wayne was, you know, the epitome of American masculinity. And boy, did he set, you know, his son up for failure. I it, it's so weird Meredith and I know you understand this it's so weird when you start to feel sympathy for a serial killer mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. it's such a weird emotional place to be in but Karen who is his sister said on the Oprah episode that her and John were best friends growing up right to that point about the fact that he was known to be kind to young girls yeah. right she said that Gacy liked doing things like gardening and cooking and baking right and that these things pissed the fuck out of his dad yeah. right as as a as a gay man who was a gay boy right mm-hmm. you know it, it, i i can definitely sympathize and empathize with this right you know karen said that gacy senior quote my father on many occasions would call john a sissy and he wasn't a happy drunk sometimes he would turn into a mean drunk so we had to always be real careful John felt like he never lived up to dad's expectations, and this went all the way into his adulthood until he married and had a son and daughter, end quote. You know, there's so much to unpack here. I don't know how many are middle-aged Chicago women that tell me similar stories about their father that really like makes us hit close to home in a way. But suffice it to say, John always felt like he wasn't enough. And he, as a young boy, I do want to add here that John Wayne Gacy did not have the typical quote unquote serial killer childhood that we typically think of. He wasn't setting things on fire. As much as we know, he did never killed or mutilated animals. In fact, he loved dogs, right? Mm -hmm. So when you take this young boy who loves gardening, cooking, and baking, who is consistently receiving traumatic brain injury from his father Mm -hmm. because of his inability to live up to these toxic male expectations, you do have to ask yourself, is this because he got knocked in the head too many times? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And just like... A ton of abuse. Yeah. Getting knocked out. The sexual abuse from the family friend, right? How often do we see that in people who grow up to target others? And we know that he was already targeting others when he was a kid, too. Yeah. Now, Gacy was alienated from kids at school. Um, he realized at a young age that he was gay, which he's in, he's he's made mention of in interviews before later he would say that a congenital heart condition kept him from playing with the other children but gacy was a constant liar so it's not clear if this is true or even if he was able to just utilize an offer mark by a doctor to mm-hmm. legitimate right this this claim right i i can say that at the at this age man i hope <laughs> Aligning myself too much with Casey here. <laughs> but I remember I, I hated gym class, right? Mm-hmm. Gym class was not friendly to the gays mm-hmm. in the 80s and 90s. Oh, yeah. And I remember saying many times, hey, I have asthma, so I can't, I can't play. I, I'm going to sit on the side and gossip with Jonathan, the, you the were so much smarter than I was. <laughs> <laughs> really? You yeah. ever, 
How do you know? You I, never I, tried. I did not lie to get out of anything, but um, <laughs> ultimately, when we got to high school, my high school offered you could do gym or JROTC. Oh, shit. And I didn't know what JROTC was, but I knew it would get okay. me out of gym. And I was like, I want to do that. Sign me up. And everyone's like, Meredith, are you sure? You've never, like, indicated any sort of, like, military <laughs> interest. And I was like, what's military? Get me in the JROTC. I would have died. I, I think my high school had the JROTC, too. Mm-hmm. I told my racist Italian gym teacher that I couldn't speak English. Wow. And I just sat with the other Mexican kids. I think there were a couple of Polish kids in there too. Yeah. That, uh, we just, we, we weren't allowed to participate because we didn't understand what he was saying. You're so smart. But, you know, so going back to, to Gacy though, like you said, Meredith, at nine, a family friend does begin to molest young Gacy. And oddly enough, I mean, this is where being a social worker, it's so hard because this alleged molester was a successful contractor at the time. Yeah. And there is a psychoanalytic theory espoused by Karen Hornet. She was a contemporary of Freud and in my estimation gets kind of lost in the, you know, very real white male worship that exists in psychotherapy. Mm-hmm. But her theories were that child abuse victims either try to completely reject the abuser and become the complete opposite they become codependent to that personality. And so they always end up finding their abuser in other forms to serve mm-hmm. or they become their abuser. Okay. Right? Yep. And when we look at this, wow. I mean, he, he abused by a contractor and that's what he decides he wants to become when he comes back to Chicago. And he's successful in it, right? He makes yeah. a lot of money. He gets a new house. Yeah. All right. So Gacy is now an adult. He's on his second wife. He has started a contracting business and he's living at 8213 West Summerdale. Mm -hmm. It's a one story ranch style brick house with a semicircle drive in the front. It's also got an oversized brick garage in the rear of the property. Yeah. By 1975, Gacy has told his wife, Carol, that he was bisexual. After the couple had sex on Mother's Day of that year, in a turn of, like, the shittiest gift ever, Gacy (laughs) informs her that this would be the last time that they would ever have sex. That is so fucked. It is ridiculous. Okay, so he begins to spend most evenings away from home. He'll get home in the early hours of the morning, and he's saying that he's working late, which I think we all can see through. Yeah. Carol observed Gacy bringing teenage boys into the garage, and she also found some gay porn. So the writing's on the wall. Carol can't read. The same year, Carol asks Gacy for a divorce, but she continues to live at the West Summerdale house until February 1976. One month later, on March 2nd, the Gacy's divorce, which was decreed upon the false grounds of Gacy's infidelity with other women, was finalized. <laughs> if there was any legal version of throwing a homophobic bone, right? Mm-hmm. She allows him to have this on record, right? This is also the murder house. Mm-hmm. So we once we once John Wayne Gacy gets into this house, he's not moving. And this house at this time was located in, what was the name of the suburb at the time? It's Norwich Park. But then becomes part of Chicago, right? Yeah, it's way up by O'Hare. I think it's still technically unincorporated, but it is also within the Chicago city limits. So I don't really understand the technicalities there, but it's up by O'Hare. But needless to say, the house has been raised. This is also around the the same time of the divorce as... Gacy killing his first victim but we're saving those murders for the next episode what we're doing again is we're setting up the basis for who Gacy was his human sides so that we can better understand the horrors that are going to 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 be coming soon this is around the same time that Gacy kills his first victim but we're saving those murders for the next episode now we're going to talk about cruising and i think this will set us up really well to contextualize the murders that are about to overlap with this time because 1972 was the time of his first murder right but they start to really ramp up once the divorce happens and he is living by himself 
And we're going to be going very deep into Cruising Gacy. Uh, Meredith, have you ever seen the movie Cruising with Al Pacino? I have not. What's, what's that about? You need to do yourself a favor and watch this movie. Al Pacino plays a cop investigating a series of murders in the leather S&M community of New York. Okay. Mm-hmm. And he goes undercover to figure out who is responsible, but does he get a little too deep in? Oh my god. <laughs> is this young El Pacino? This is young El Pacino. Wow. This is young El Pacino dancing shirtless in leather pants. Ooh, okay. What? Everyone needs to watch this damn movie. Okay? okay. It's on the list. But basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to talk about this phenomenon of cruising in the gay community, which for those of you who don't know, cruising basically means you're looking for anonymous sex with another man Mm -hmm. okay that's what cruising means Mm -hmm. right and the way that this works is that there are basically hot spots right that exist where you are able to go to find other like-minded individuals prior to the age of of grinder you know there were parks and there are still parks that exist today that are known to the gay community as being hot spots of cruising meredith we both went to the university of chicago are you aware of some of the cruising spots on campus no i had no idea really see i think this is so fascinating because it's almost like harry potter where there's another world on top of the world well, it also reminds me of uh, The City in the City, which is that book about like two cities that share the same geographic location, but the residents yeah. of each city just look past each other. Yeah. Yeah. I-, I love that analogy, Meredith, because I think that this is really what's going on with Gacy's sexuality mm-hmm. in Chicago, right? Because he's trying to live his life as a straight man, right? Mm-hmm. And only straight men are seeing him, but he's also living in this other world as a... We're going to talk about this. Um, you know, we have to talk about him as a sexual creature, right? Mm-hmm. Where he is a sexual creature. Because l- let us also explain, too, that there's, there is a reason why we need to look at human Gacy here. Because not every guy that he was with sexually was killed or was sexually assaulted, right? right? right. He was hooking up with a lot of guys at the time, yeah. okay? And the type of person that he was sexually attracted to was what we would call in modern day gay parlance a twink, right? Mm-hmm. Do you know what a twink is? Um slender elven type young men. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> elven is a very good adjective. Then <laughs> he in the in this in this dynamic would have been the quote unquote daddy, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And I think that if I were to put, I, I, I myself was never a twink, right? Mm-hmm. But there is something that I think because of his glib charm, his flash, mm-hmm. and that very convincing personality that I think was probably very convincing for young gay men at that time, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And when you mentioned taking teenage boys to the garage man that was triggering as fuck because i think being a gay teenager on chicago's south side i I don't like to admit the amount of the amount of sex i had in garages Mm -hmm. right with what i can only assume were married men right Right. again i think this is why it's so good that chicagoans are doing this because this is not something unheard of right yeah Part of it is because of garage culture in Chicago, uh, which really does make Chicago very different than a lot of other major cities in the fact that we have alleyways. Yep. Alleyways that are facing garages, meaning that there is a clandestine entrance right to every home. And back in my day, uh, the way that you were able to meet people were two ways, right? One was you went on the burgeoning AOL <laughs> landscape, right? Or there were party lines. Party lines were these phone numbers that you, you called and you basically left messages for other people. And so many Southside closeted men would invite you to their garage to have sex. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was such a a weird world. I remember one time I was having sex with a guy and he had the baby monitor radio with him. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. 
but when you're young and gay, you, you don't really put a lot of thought into those things. And I very easily could have been killed. Right. Well, and also on the other side, they're putting their address out into the world. They're putting themselves at risk for people who are targeting their home for theft. Yeah. Other things as well. So there's a lot. What I'm hearing in the story is that there's a lot of trust in the community. Trust? Do we want to call it dumb trust? <laughs> well, and also... Obviously, I don't know a lot about what I, I don't know about, but it doesn't seem like there was a huge crime wave as a result of this activity, right? Yes and no, right? Because we see we see a lot of serial killers coming out of the gay community, mm -hmm, right? Mm -hmm. But were they coming out of this hookup culture? In some cases, yes. But I, I'm going to say as a larger percentage, I have said many times to many people that it is a wonder to me that, <laughs> that we are not killed more often, right? Yeah. But we need to think about the Chicago and the gay Chicago that Gacy is entering into. <laughs> because in the 1970s, Chicago's gay scene was mostly located on the gold coast but it is booming okay and let's put this into context stonewall was in 1969 mm -hmm. right so we are ramping up into the period of gay quote-unquote liberation right, right? right and a book that i used to do a lot of this research is queer clout chicago and the rise of gay politics this is by timothy stewart winter and the book basically lays out that Chicago's gay political movement was very different from New York and San Francisco, right? And that a lot of times when we talk about the gay liberation movement, we only focus on the coastal cities, right? right. But that within Chicago, the real ramping up point wasn't actually Stonewall. It was the Democratic Convention of 68, right? Mm -hmm. Which deserves its own star on the Chicago flag, right? It does, yeah. Because <laughs> there was so much that happened as a result of that. Mm -hmm. But the argument here is that in 1968, that's really when organizing gay politics really happened. And what they used as their model was the black political movement that was happening at the same time, mm -hmm. right? So a lot of the gay political movement, you know, has the black American political movement to think, right? Mm -hmm. Basically, in Chicago in 1970, following Stonewall, following the Democratic Convention, a militant gay liberation organization formed at the University of Chicago that sponsored a citywide dance at the Coliseum Annex in 1970, which was the first public lesbian and gay dance. Oh, wow. Okay. Shortly thereafter, the university group, they merged with the newly founded Chicago Gay Liberation Movement, CGL, mm -hmm. and they led a successful picketing campaign to force the Normandy on Rush Street, which was a, a bar club at the time. Mm -hmm. And again, Rush Street, we're in the Gold Coast, yep. right? to become the first gay bar in Chicago to obtain a dance license that permitted same-sex dancing, okay? The reason why I'm bringing all this up is because we have to put Gacy, we have to plop him into this world where the sexual liberation movement is really ramping up in Chicago, yeah. okay? He's able to take advantage of a situation that really allowed his cruising self to operate, mm -hmm. right? Because this is when lesbian and gay bars, dance clubs, and bathhouses are multiplying. And we're at the precipice of the advent of Lakeview Boys Town being founded, mm -hmm. right, in the early 1980s. For those of you who don't know, the neighborhood in Chicago that is our LGBTQ neighborhood is called Boys Town or Lakeview, right? Yeah. And this is also right before the AIDS pandemic, so we're in this really small time period between sexual liberation and the really repressive politics that hit the gay community in the 1980s and the stigma, right? Mm -hmm. And Gacy is cultivating a persona that is really a product of his time, right? Yes. He's a well-off white male politically connected who has learned how to get away with things during a time that gay sexuality is blossoming. And now that he has his home all to himself, John Wayne Gacy is now able to come out and play, yeah. right? And he's able to do so with impunity 
And this is really where we start to see the horrors, right? Which are going to lead us up to next week. So do you want to talk a little bit about what's going to happen next week, Meredith? Yeah, next week we're going to talk a little bit more about um, the specific victims that Gacy picked up and uh, who are unfortunate enough to be in his line of sight. Uh, We're also going to go ahead and go through how he got caught. Uh, Mm. We're going to discuss where in Chicagoland he was hunting and uh, discuss about like why these so-called hunting grounds were so fertile for him. Yeah. All right. So more on that next week when we continue our conversation on uh, the man they called Gacy. And uh, we look forward to continuing then. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death, was created and produced by us, Jonathan Sanchez-Leos and Meredith Halsey. Our theme music is The Original Chicago Blues, which was composed by James White in 1915 and performed by Katerina Storchius in 2021. Artwork is by Laura Gosdell. Special thanks to everyone who helped make this season possible, including the friends and family who listened, gave constructive feedback, and offered advice and pointers on recording and editing. And thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more from us, subscribe to Murderland Chicago, A Deep Dish of Death on your podcast app. Follow us on Patreon at Murderland Chicago. And find us on Instagram at Deep Dish of Death. Throughout the making of this podcast, we did quite a bit of research to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, but we know that sometimes information sources contain errors, and we accept that, in conversation, we may have introduced errors to the stories. To that point, this podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please send any comments, suggestions, or correction of errors to us at deepdishofdeath at gmail.com.